Indeed, Father, would you open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word that we may know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. We pray this humbly and yet confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen. Those of you with us last week, remember that the end of Mark was sudden and abrupt, and we ended for a number of reasons at verse 8 of chapter 16. And I believe that was by design and by purpose in God's good providence that it was a an abrupt end that makes us think and consider and go back uh, to what it was that Jesus had said about his own life, death, and resurrection and what the women at the tomb encountered. But I thought it would be best that the series not end suddenly or abruptly, but rather a bit more gradual. Back on the 27th of September, 2015, we started Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And that day we looked at a sermon entitled An Introduction to the Gospel of Mark, where we looked at verse 1 of chapter 1. Some of you were here then, others of you were not, but today will be an attempt to to be the bookend of that sermon, to do what I thought over the past few days is the impossible, to provide an overview and wrap up Mark, to present a conclusion to the gospel of Mark. We said often in the beginning uh, sermons of that series that there there was and is a widespread problem. People are ignorant of who Jesus is. People are confused about his identity. Back in the Navy, whenever I would bring a problem to my boss, he would always ask if I was also bringing the solution. Well, to this problem of ignorance and confusion, the gospel of Mark is a solution. Because Mark, like the other three gospels, exposes the biblical Jesus, makes Jesus known. There's a problem of widespread ignorance and confusion, but there is a solution. God's word here the Gospels. Well, why the Bible? If we want to know who Jesus is and what he's done, why the Bible? Obviously, it's an, it's an easy answer here, but let's say it. It's because God has chosen to reveal himself through his word. God could have chosen any number of things. He does reveal himself through creation. He reveals himself through his written word. And supremely, he reveals himself through his word in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to whom this entire written word points. It's, it's the, we're looking at the Bible because that's God has, cho- God has chosen to reveal himself through his written word. All 66 books, one story, one message, one person. And it's all about Jesus as the post-resurrected Jesus announced in Luke 24. In the Old Testament, we have Jesus predicted. In the Gospels, we have Jesus revealed. In Acts, Jesus is preached. In the letters, he's explained. And finally, in Revelation, he is expected. Why 
a gospel. It's because, as I just said, it's where Jesus is revealed most clearly. And why Mark? Well, because Mark's the shortest gospel. Would y'all want a longer series of Matthew or, or Luke or John? We started with Mark because it's believed to be the earliest gospel, the core gospel of which both Matthew and Luke used. And we also believe that Peter, as he's writing in the 50s or 60s from Rome, kind of to Rome, he's putting into writing what he's heard from Peter, Peter's sermons about the life and ministry of Jesus. Well, what is this gospel of Mark? It's not a biography. It's not a complete account of Jesus' public ministry. It's an emphasis, interestingly, on his last days and his death. But because Jesus comes on the scene and indeed the calendars that we all use is divided by his life, death, and resurrection, a new genre of literature, a new type of literature had to come into existence to to capture the fullness of this life and ministry. And at the time in first century um, Israel, in the Greek world, the gospel was a technical term. The word gospel was out there. It was usually used for good news of a great military victory. Also, good news of a royal birth. A military victory and a royal birth. And here, it's going to be, that word is going to be used by the writers of the New Testament to, to speak of the good news of Jesus Christ, the earth-shaking, earth-changing, life-changing news of Jesus Christ. Mark doesn't write a complete work. He selects and arranges for a purpose. And the closest thing is, is a PBS documentary that you might have seen on TV where he's going to include both typical events and unique once-and-for-all events in the life and ministry of Jesus Mark, as you know, is fast-paced. He's rapid, vivid, descriptive details. I love the word immediately. Mark is so 21st century. Immediately this happens. Immediately that happens. There are times that you almost want to say, as you're reading Mark, slow down. I can't keep up. Things are happening too fast. Mark, as he puts this docudrama on the life and ministry of Jesus together, you'll notice the camera often zooms in on the action of Jesus. It goes in to the room where Jesus heals a sick person. It goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. But then it also zooms out and it pans the crowd to get the audience's reaction to Jesus' words Jesus' deeds. Now this is a conclusion to the Gospel of Mark, but you notice I'm also calling it the shortest catechism. When I first heard the word catechize, it sounded painful. I didn't know if I wanted anything to do with it. But catechesis is a systematic instruction. It's teaching method using what? Simple questions and answers. In our theological tradition, we've got the Westminster Larger Catechism, 196 questions and answers. We have the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 107 questions and answers. And we often use the Heidelberg Catechism, 129 questions and answers. 
Answers that are given are important, but so are the questions that are asked. And Mark's gospel asks three questions. It also provides the answers. And although they could be viewed at times as multiple choice, true false, fill in the blank, and short answer, the fullness and depth of the answers to the essay questions will be given over a lifetime of meditating on God's Word, on Mark's Gospel, and walking with Jesus, knowing Him and following Him. But let's get started now in this conclusion by asking and answering three simple questions. First, who is Jesus? Mark, Jesus' identity. Mark tells us, who Jesus is in the first verse of chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But then he reveals that identity slowly over 16 chapters. Well, what could we say about the identity of Jesus? Lots of things. He's the one who's baptized. He's tempted. He calls disciples. He heals. He preaches. He teaches with authority. He says of himself he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He tells parables. We see him still the storm. He says he's, his disciples realize he's the Lord of nature. Who is Jesus? He's rejected. He speaks of his death and resurrection often. He's transfigured into this bright, shining glory that a few of his disciples get to see. Who is Jesus? He's the one who enters Jerusalem knowing that he will not leave Jerusalem alive. He knows he's going to his death. But I, I want to look at four major IDs. If Jesus had a driver's license, as it were, children, on it would be four things that I think we see from Mark's gospel. And they're easy to remember. Four things. Who is he? Well, first of all, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He's a man. He's human. From the first chapter, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read in verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. In the last chapter, verse 6 of chapter 16, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. So who is he? Who's this central character in Mark's gospel? He's Jesus. But he's also Christ. He's the Messiah. He is God. He is divine. Again, Mark 1.1, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the hinge at the middle of Mark's Gospel in chapter 8, Peter's confession in response to Jesus' question to him in verse 29 of chapter 8. Who do people say that I am? Who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter says this, you are the Christ. But I want you to notice something. Not only did Peter confess this man as Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, divine. Jesus himself confessed that he was Christ. Well, turn with me, if you would, over to chapter 14. Jesus is before the high priest. 
And in verse 61, we read this. Jesus is before the council, but Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Verse 62, And Jesus said, I am. Peter confesses it. Jesus Himself says, I am the Christ. But the third identity on this driver's license, so to speak, is Son of Man. Son of Man. It's the most used title that Jesus uses of Himself. In fact, in Mark, the only time the Son of Man is used is when Jesus Himself is using it. In, verse, in chapter 2, Jesus says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In chapter 2, verse 38, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. The Son of Man will be delivered to suffer, to be crucified to be buried, but to be raised on the third day. So He is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of Man, but also He is the Son of God. Three declarations. Mark makes it at the very beginning. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we saw at the end, the Roman centurion says it as well. Truly this man was the Son of God. The Son of God recognized not so much in His life, but in His death, how He died. But also in the middle of Mark, you see the unclean spirits. You see the spiritual world, the demons, knowing exactly who Jesus is. It's not a saving knowledge, but it is an accurate knowledge. In chapter 3, verse 11, the unclean spirits, I know who you are. You are the Son of God. But Jesus says, not now. Be quiet. It's not time yet. That time will come at my death when I'll be revealed by a Gentile, one who put me to death as the Son of God. Who is Jesus? Who is Christ Who is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of God? It's this Jesus Christ, this this man from Nazareth of Galilee. Mark is making it clear. He is the anointed king. He is the suffering servant. As I mentioned, chapter 8, with Peter's confession, it serves as a hinge on which the Gospel of Mark turns. Chapters 1 through 8, remember, were primarily, who is Jesus? A discussion and a depiction of his person. And chapters 8 through 16 is what did Jesus come to do? His work. And we saw primarily he came to die. So we've looked briefly at who is Jesus, his identity. Let's look now at what did Jesus come to do? His mission. Well, what could we say about what he came to do? His mission, his purpose. Lots of things. I did a quick survey of Mark and I saw immediately Jesus came to preach, he came to teach, he came to heal. But let's look 
specifically at a few times where in Jesus' own words, this is what he said he came to do. In chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus said this, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I want you to think about that in view of how you even look at Christianity. Jesus Christ, you know, the center of Christianity. I, um, I read a book once called Christless Christianity. Why would a book like that have to be written? How could Christianity not be centered upon Jesus Christ? So if Jesus says, I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners, how does that affect what you understand as Christianity? Is it a do-it-yourself, self-help, I've got it together, I'm going to bring Jesus into my life and take me to the next level? Remember, he said, it's not the well who need a physician, it's the sick. Jesus, in his own words, what did he come to do? He came to call sinners. That's why throughout our look at Mark's gospel, we occasionally sang that great hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Come Ye Sinners. Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Jesus came to call sinners, but Jesus also said directly that he came to serve. We've mentioned it already, chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Remember that the, the disciples were jockeying for position. Jesus was explaining that here's how the Gentiles do things, but not so among you. The first is going to be last, and the one who serves is going to be the greatest. And he transitions from there over to him. For even the Son of Man, in other words, even me, came not to be served, although rightly, of course, Jesus is the king. Rightly, he deserves to be served by all his subjects. But he came not to be served, but to serve. But that verse doesn't end there because Jesus not just came to serve in general. Jesus came to serve in particular, and the verse continues, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember, we took four servant songs of the Messiah from Isaiah to help us understand and unpack what did Jesus mean when he said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus makes it absolutely and unmistakably clear three times in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And I think it's amazing. It's chapters 8, 31, 9, 33, 10, 31, or thereabouts. I mean, three chapters in a row, Mark records Jesus telling his disciples that he must suffer. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be Flogged, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be crucified, he's going to die, but he never ends it there. He's going to rise again on the third day. Even though it's unmistakable, 
even though it's absolutely clear, the disciples don't get it. They don't understand. The first time Jesus mentions that, what happens? Peter rebukes Jesus. But then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter with some really kind and encouraging words. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus came to rescue men and women, boys and girls from sin and to restore them into a right relationship with their creator. He came to call those people, to serve those people, to die for those people. He came to rescue them and restore them. The identity of Jesus is seen in who he is and what he came to do. And throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen the responses of a variety of people to the person and work of Jesus. So let's now look at this third question in this shortest catechism. How should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Turn with me to Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. For those of you that have an unbelievable memory, you may remember that the sermon on this was entitled, The Declaration and Demand of the Gospel. The Declaration and the Demand of the Gospel. It's the first words of Jesus. Mark is using it as Jesus' first public sermon that's going to orient his ministry. And it begins with an announcement. Look at the announcement. In verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Good news. The the time that all time has been looking and pointing to is here. And the kingdom of God is at hand because I am the king and I'm bringing the kingdom of God with me. But that announcement... That sermon that began with an announcement comes with a call. The declaration is followed by the demand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And because of that, in view of that, then repent and believe in the gospel. Here you see the fraternal twins of repentance and faith, the the two sides of the same coin, the two wings of the plane that are absolutely necessary for that plane to fly. But before we consider how someone should respond to this sermon of Jesus, let's see how people did respond. Throughout Mark's gospel, we see a category of people who oppose Jesus. They reject his message and they reject him. And you see early on at the end of verse or chapter three that um, uh, or in chapter three that they because of Jesus's teaching and, and the miracles he's performing, some of the religious leaders already are getting together in a plotting to destroy him. No one can, can be neutral about Jesus. Um, he, Jesus, through his ministry, will say, crown me or kill me. There's really no other option. 
There are those that oppose Jesus. And generally speaking, you see it from the religious leaders of all stripes, Pharisees and and Sadducees, and you see Herodians, and you see others, and you see that Jesus' opposition to Jesus unites people who otherwise would be enemies of themselves, of each other. How do people respond to the person and work of Jesus? Well, some people oppose him. They reject his message, and they reject him. But others, others expressed faith as they believed his message, as they received him. And we see all over the place uh, men bringing a paralyzed man to Jesus. And Jesus says, "Your, your faith has healed you. You see a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years approach Jesus and touch the hem of his garment and she's, her blood flow is stopped. And Jesus in the midst of a crowd says, who touched me? Daughter, your faith has made you well. You see a man on the roadside, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And he would not stop. We, we, we see time and time again, people come to Jesus. They express faith. Jesus recognizes it. To some, Jesus says something hard and they walk away. But others, he says something hard and their heart is penetrated And they stick with Jesus. Go with me back to chapter 8. Verses 28, 29, 30, and 31. Again, I mentioned that this would be a pivotal place in Mark's gospel. In chapter 8, you see the transition from how did... Someone or how does someone respond to Jesus? To how should someone respond? And what I mean by that is, remember, Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the disciples, gives a, a great answer. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Accurate answers. But Jesus then is going to turn around and ask a personal question. But who do you Say that I am. More about that in a moment. So we've seen how people did respond. Some opposed Jesus. Some expressed faith. Well, how should someone respond? Okay, here's the ideal. How should someone? Go back to the call from Jesus' initial public sermon. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the first call of Mark. Repent and believe. How should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? They should repent. And they should believe. I mean, should is sometimes not a bad word, right? You should, yeah, you should. Should repent and believe. But there's also another call, and it happens after Peter's confession. It's... In in, uh, chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? They should repent and believe and follow Jesus. And part of that following Jesus is getting yourself out of the way and putting the burden that Jesus bore on you as well. 
Again, Peter's asked the easy question. Who do people say that I am? And unbelievers can give that answer. You ever, you ever knew that? There are unbelievers all around us. You ask them who, who Jesus is, they could say He's Jesus, Christ, Son of Man, Son of God. Why? Because the demons can say that. Accurate knowledge. But then Jesus asked the follow-up question, the personal question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter is forced, as it were, to make a decision, although he would rightly say that his decision was only compelled by the unbelievable, amazing grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you are the Christ. And in one other gospel, Jesus goes on to tell him, Peter, you didn't come up with this on your own. It was revealed to you. So here's the question. It's not so much how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus, but this. How should you respond? How should you respond? You know, I was thinking about this third point in this um, sermon. You know, how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? And I was very tempted to stand up and, and announce that and then move after about a five minute period of silence into the conclusion. Because Mark is not just here for us to learn about Jesus. Mark is presenting Jesus that we would know Jesus as Savior, as Lord. So the question is this, how should you respond? But let me word it a little bit differently. How have you responded to the person and work of Jesus? None of us, none of us have responded in a way that is completely honest. I mean, why else do we have sanctification? Because we're dying to sin and we're put living to righteousness. We're putting off and putting on. And so there's an element of unbelief in our declaration of belief that continues to need to be exposed and put to death. And one of the reasons why we're in a church is to help one another put unbelief to death and feed belief. My friends, these three questions are really a matter of life and death. I, I mentioned about the Fultons and their son, Henry. I mean, Henry really did almost die at birth along with his mother. And Henry almost died a few times after that. It's a matter of life and death. And these questions and our answers are also a matter of life and death. And once you know what questions to ask and where to find the answers, then you're headed, you're turned in a good direction. But our study of Mark has not been just about gathering information and knowledge and then doing nothing with that knowledge. I want to conclude by looking briefly at a command, a cry, and a comfort. A command, a cry, and a comfort. 
Back in chapter 4, Jesus said this, He who has ears, let him hear. A few verses later, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And chapter 4, where we find the parable of the soils, was all about various responses to the Word of God. And there are also various responses to the Word of God in the flesh, to Jesus. So Jesus has a command to anyone who has ears... Let him hear. And there's a cry. In chapter 9, verses 23 through 28, 24. Chapter 9. Remember, Jesus is healing a boy with an unclean spirit. And the father saying in verse 22, And it has often cast him into fire, into water, and into water to destroy him. But... If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. What a great confession of faith here and now. A cry, I believe, help my unbelief. And then a comfort. A comfort. Where can we find some of the most comforting words in Mark's Gospel? Well, if you were here last week, you heard it from chapter 16, verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And Peter, the one who had denied Jesus, the one who had disowned Jesus, the one who, who, who in the face of a little pressure from a 12-year-old girl, wilted, betrayed his Lord, who broke down and wept, and this comfort and Peter, because Jesus offers grace to sinners. He's come to call sinners and he offers grace to sinners. People like you and me. Two times in Mark's gospel, Jesus is asked this question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? In chapter 10, verses 36 and 37, his disciples answer. And you know what they say? We want power and glory. Later in that chapter, and it's not accidental that Mark put it there. Later in that chapter, Jesus asked a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? And what does he say? Rabbi, I want to see. I want to recover my sight. Friends, having now been exposed to the biblical Jesus through our study of Mark's gospel and hopefully having lessened some of our ignorance and cleared up some of our confusion when it comes to Jesus, what do you want Jesus to do for you?
We've got two good examples. I want power and glory because Jesus, you're my ticket to earthly success and fame and even heavenly success because they were wanting seats with him. Or do you want your blindness removed? Do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to see life as it is? Do you want to see your fellow traveler on this journey? Jesus asked that question then, and he, through his word and by his spirit, is asking that question right now. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Remember how Mark ended? He ended with the resurrection to be sure, but the weight of what Mark chose to include at the end concerned his death. Indeed, it was at his death that he was recognized with the highest title he could have been recognized as the Son of God. In just a few moments, the Lord is going to present His people with a means of nourishing and strengthening the faith He has given us because the Lord's Supper both remembers His death and proclaims His death for sinners. Those people He has come to call and those people to whom He offers mercy and grace. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Mark's Gospel. We thank You for this particular angle and perspective on the life and ministry of Jesus. And we thank You not only for Mark's Gospel, but for the entire biblical witness to Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God. Oh, Father, would you continue through your word and by your spirit to lessen our ignorance of him, to continue to clear up some confusion that we still may have, and lead lives where we deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus, confident that he has gone on ahead of us and confident that he prepares a place for us. Oh, Father, we long to see your kingdom that is here now in part be realized in full. Lord, in the meantime, help us to continue to walk by faith and not by sight. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.